Hey, Dan, you uh, ready for the holidays? Yep, you betcha. Trees up, presents all wrapped, Christmas dinner menu planned. Hey, um, you know, if you'll allow me a stupid question, but how do Indigenous people celebrate Christmas? Like, do, do you guys do all the same stuff we do? Uh, some do, some don't. Uh, some just celebrate the winter solstice with uh, food and family and so on. But is it, isn't there some, like, you know, Indigenous thing you guys do around December 25th? Uh, okay. All right, how's this? Uh, we call Christmas Junia Day, and we start with um, a 23-day feast. It starts on December 24th. We do sweat lodges every day during that period, usually from 3 a.m. to midnight. Uh, then we fast from 5 p.m., and then it's a different feast item every day for 23 days. Holy cow. And, uh, and then and then there's the bonfires. Uh, we have to keep a fire going for the entire time, no matter what the weather is. Uh, 23 days of fires, and it can never go out. Uh, the men and women who keep the fire, uh, no one can be wearing any clothing whatsoever. No earthly belongings, including clothes for any of our fire keepers. Oh, that's incredible. And then on the 23rd day, uh, we sacrifice uh, a beaver if we can find one. Uh, but let me tell you, it's hard to come up with one at this time of year. Uh, so what we do is we send out all the 12-year-olds in our community to go out and catch them. Uh, it's an important rite of passage. Uh, it's a good year when we get a beaver and all the kids come back safe and sound. This is the most incredible stuff I've ever heard. How come I've never heard about it before? Well, you know, truthfully, we like to keep our traditions very sacred. And that means we keep them very discreet. In fact, I really shouldn't be telling you any of this. And, and so I need you to just keep this to yourself. Oh, done and done. Okay, well, I'm off for my very first uh, Christmas break. You enjoy the 23 days of June. Junia yeah. Day. Junia Day. And uh, yeah, we'll touch base uh, after that's over. Uh, Nigan, can I ask you a quick question? Go for it. I just wanted to check. None of that is true, is it? Not even a little bit. I just made it up for Dan's sake. <laughs> Don't you feel bad for having him on? When I think back over the last uh, 500 or so years, I'm kind of okay with it, if you know what I mean. Yep. Well played, mate. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Nigan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Nigan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Welcome, everybody. Uh, this is the the last Nigan and the Lone Ranger podcast before Christmas or uh, holiday season, whatever holiday uh, you and your family celebrate. And uh, we're we're going to try and cover a lot of ground today, and uh, and do some uh, some different things, some interesting things. Um, and, uh, and again, uh, not to echo our opening, but you're you're good to go for the holiday season. I'm great. I'm uh, you know knee deep in snow like everybody else, and uh, just trying to make my way through the holidays. We've got things planned for my family. We've uh, when you're coming from. Uh, uh, you know, a complex family that has lots of different parts to it. We, some of us celebrate 
the Christmas. Some of us don't. And uh, what will be, you know, usually starting about December 22nd, it's just all family for about a week. Everybody's in and uh, it's pretty, pretty good to be around each other this time of year. Um, and this year is a really special year, too, because we're uh, celebrating lots of our family that's passed on. And so we're holding a, a feast to celebrate our families or our ancestors who have passed on. And this year has been really tough because we've lost so many elders and uh, in our community, uh, Charlie Nelson, particularly, and uh, Roger Roulette and uh, others, uh, Clarence Niepenak. You know, so many elders have left this year uh, to travel to the West. And so we're uh, we're honoring them with this year's feast. Um, you know, I was, I can't help, but, uh, you know, was this, this time is such a celebratory time, but it's also a pretty dark time, I think in the city, not just because of what's happened with indigenous women, but, uh, you wrote a column that appeared this week in the free press, uh, about the stabbing of Tyree Kyer and, uh, it, you know, just what a tragedy of the, in the downtown library, um, four teenagers have been charged, and uh, these are all people under the age of 18 who uh, who hurt this uh, 28-year-old. Last Sunday at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, uh, Tyree Kerr ran into the library. Uh, a number of youth followed him, uh, chased after him, and then, and then uh, he met his tragic end in that space. And the library has really been closed since then. Uh, it's a real tragedy that's hit the downtown. And uh, I know that you wrote a column about this mm-hmm. um, uh, what did you say in your column that uh, people might not know, otherwise know? Well, I mean, the first thing to acknowledge is that, um, you know, uh, downtowns, the uh, core areas of, of big urban centers are are going through a bit of a crisis right now. It's, you know, all over Western Europe, all over uh, North America. Um, you know, it's a combination of the disruption from the pandemic and uh, mental health uh, addictions, um, homelessness, uh, all things combining. And, you know, we've kind of lost the end of the rope on these things. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of these uh, macro forces come to play in this one tragic incident. In, in particular, though, like as I started to talk to people and and look at the, um, you know, the the events that led up to this, and by events, I mean decisions that the library made about security, about programming, what like what we come to is this idea that you know what happened to this young man is horrible and extremely sad but it was entirely predictable um you know libraries are one of the last if i can call it this one of the last non-judgmental public spaces left in the quarter of cities um you know other, the lobbies of of private buildings uh, shopping malls downtown. These places have all been very, very effective at running uh, downtown population out of their facilities. Libraries don't do that. They welcome anybody and everybody, and they often absorb all their problems. And, you know, it's just, um, you know, we were basically, it, it's it's uh, the city and the province and half-assed attempts to create a safe space in the library, half-assed attempts to deal with the problems outside the library. I mean, really, like the last line of my column is like, what did we think was going to happen with with all these this half-assed effort? The the space of the library really was the only place for lots of people who are in poverty and and people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, 
when they closed the bathrooms downtown and they specifically closed the library during the pandemic, uh, you saw drug use exponentially increase as a result. You also saw crime increase and youth crime specifically. Uh, Until 2020, just before the pandemic, uh, crime was at an all-time low uh, for, you know, decades and decades before that, uh, particularly amongst youth. And since uh, 2021, uh, youth crime has increased by 27%, Mm. and crime has increased almost 25% um, since that time period, just specifically since the pandemic. And so what you've seen is this bounce back where Winnipeg police, the community, uh, many you know social service agencies, volunteer-run organizations, were getting a handle on the situation involving crime in the downtown. I think people often don't hear that story about Winnipeg, but because of the pandemic, because of the exponential increase of the reliance on public infrastructure, particularly places like the library, then we've seen this this bounce back of crime, and really it hit home with this stabbing, which tells you that. Uh, city services, provincial services can't just ignore the situation, uh, you know, close bus shelters, for example, you know, take out the glass and bus shelters and think they're fixing the issue of poverty. Yeah. Uh, they have to s- facilitate and support places like the library, which are going to be the ground zero for what are ma- some of these major incidents that are going to happen downtown. Yeah, I mean, the thing that that just absolutely enrages me uh, about what's going on down in the, you know, at the library, I mean, they they have the various attempts have been made to increase the safety and to de-escalate and intervene when, um, you know, an individual or a group of people, um, you know, get involved in, in some sort of disruption. And, you know, like, it's just, it's embarrassing, uh, quite frankly, the approach uh, that this the city has taken and the lack of support from the senior levels of government. So, you know, we go back to 2019, we did, uh, you know, they did uh, metal detecting wands and bag searches at the library. This was their solution. Um, but of course, like we, we picked, like the, the city picked the cheapest, <laughs> most limited way of going about you know, metal detection. They had to stop everybody. Just ended up bags. Just ended up cutting off this the place for more people, which is yeah. the problem in the first place. Just like closing the bathrooms. Yeah, and I mean, like you know, like there were more expense. There was more expensive machines and technology available that would have allowed people to move more quickly in with less disruption. And, uh, and we decided, you know, to go the bargain basement route. And so, you know, people reacted, it was awful. Then the pandemic hit, the library was closed. And when the the library reopened, they ditched the, the metal detecting wads and folding tables. And, um, you know, we, so we've gone through a period of time since then when, you know, like, like the library, the security presence are is private security firms. And I don't mean to disparage anybody who makes their living as a private security guard. It's good, honest work. But I mean, really, like putting a bunch of mall security guards into an environment like the library has got it like you with are just absolutely no knowledge. No. With absolutely no knowledge no. as to oftentimes who are Indigenous peoples, where did they come from? I mean, we're talking about many times Indigenous peoples. And yeah. There has to be crisis intervention workers who are culturally competent, who can handle situations of mental health and addiction. And we may not think of a library as this space, but hello, it is become yeah. this space. 
Well, and it's funny you should mention uh, crisis intervention workers because it, with great fanfare, um, the city did open up a uh, uh, something called Community Connections. It's a uh, a single window um, resource for people to access help for mental health and addictions, for homelessness. Um, you know, new Canadians that are trying to navigate uh, you know their life in a new city that people can get computer access, they can get references uh, for healthcare, uh, food security. I mean, it's a good idea. It's also, you know, really the standard in big urban library systems. Um, however, here's the catch, okay? So this is great. So the federal government gave the city some money, the city gave uh, the library system this money, and they created the space. And then they told the library system that they had to pay out of their budget for the like social workers, crisis intervention staff, uh, to 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 populate this uh, community connections, and you know, l- let's face it, the library system is not getting the same support. Let's say as the Winnipeg Police Service, so they have a pretty lean budget. So they had to take out of their library budget, and librarians who really have you know, their their librarians are great people, as you well know. I have a deep appreciation for librarians, but uh, they they're not trained for this kind of work. Well, they're staffing community connections. So it it's so lean and ridiculously cheap approach means that the crisis intervention workers are not available for all the hours that the library the downtown branch of the library is open. So it's, you know, again, it's like, you know, you take a a cheap-ass approach, you get a bad result. What did they think was going to happen? Yeah, exactly. And the situation, uh, unfortunately, is increasing and is getting increasingly more dangerous. There's also been uh, another situation in a uh, hotel near uh, just down Portage Avenue that just had a, um, a violent incident that just happened. I mean, we... There is a ongoing situation within the city, and I'm the first person to say that these are stories are often overblown, but even I'm saying that there is a uh, serious situation happening in the city that can't just involve more metal detectors and police officers. It's got to involve people who are doing frontline work who can assist. Many of those are already volunteer organizations doing things for peanuts and they have to be able to do uh, fund the city has to be able to fund better agencies. The province has to fund better agencies uh, to be able to do this work more effectively than simply just throwing people into jail. Uh, yeah, uh, for sure. Um, I think um, uh, the trouble in Winnipeg, though, however, is not the only trouble that landed on our radar screen this week. Um, I was you know, one of say, our, speaking yeah. of jail. Speaking of jail, <laughs> that's right. Um, the uh, the uh, this week, um, one of our favorite stories, uh, Nigan and I, uh, one of our favorite stories, took a quantum leap forward in the melodrama uh, on the melodrama scale. When the special committee of the U.S. Congress that's been looking into the January 6th insurrection recommended um, uh, criminal charges uh, against uh, former U.S. uh, President Donald Trump uh, for uh, potential uh, charges, these are recommendations to the Justice Department uh, who uh, prosecute such things. There's no guarantee that this will happen. It's also important to understand too, that in the transition that's going to take place in January, where Republicans are going to regain control January of the 3rd. House. 
yeah, yeah January third. Yeah. yeah, that that this was this was a bipartisan committee. There are Republicans supporting uh, the notion of charges, but that you know the uh, there's going to be some um, uh, there's going to be some uh, vigorous efforts made by Republicans to roll this thing back, put the genie back in the bottle. Still, it's uh, pretty fascinating to see a bipartisan committee. Uh, seek to hold a former president of the United States criminally liable for the events of January the 6th. Only since Nixon has this happened. But when the difference is, of course, is when Nixon was uh, recommended for criminal charges, that was 100% support from all parties. And uh, this, of course, difference is that uh, I'll give, you know, it, it can be described in a simple way. Uh, Mike Pence, as soon as the results for the December 6th or sorry, January 6th hearings came out this week, Mike Pence came out to say, uh, well, you know, this might not be criminal liable, liable. It's irresponsible, <laughs> as he said. Now, now we have to remember that Mike Pence was one of the individuals who the January 6th protesters, I saw a video uh, just this morning, in fact, was he was there were there was a chant going during the January six uh, um, insurrection, uh, hang Mike Pence. Uh, he was rushed out of the Capitol to a secure location, secret location that even the president did, wasn't aware of where he was, which tells you a lot of uh, the situation that even Mike Pence thought about when it came to his own safety. Mm-hmm. Uh this, of course, these recommendations don't come with a lot of teeth. It's the Department of Justice who has appointed a special prosecutor to investigate whether they can uh, lay charges on the president. But, I mean, these four charges are very serious, are uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States, obstruction of an official proceeding, uh, conspiracy to make false statements, and inciting an, ira- an insurrection. I mean, like any of the four of these, pick mm-hmm. and choose. Yeah, I mean, this isn't the only legal uh, trouble facing um, Donald Trump. I mean, there are there's still potential criminal charges uh, relating to his uh, absconding with uh, classified documents and refusing to turn them over, and concerns that there are still he still may be in possession of, of sensitive and classified materials. I, I mean, it, this is um, this is a a seminal. Uh, maybe in in the history of the world's democracies too, like one of the most historic tests of democratic institutions. Um, you know whether or not a government, uh, you know, broadly speaking, which includes some very diametrically opposed political views, whether they can come together and agree that certain behavior, even by the chief executive, is completely unacceptable. I mean, you know, I will say. Like, uh, and we've talked about this before, but in the midterm elections, American democratic institutions proved remarkably resilient and voters, uh, you know, seemed to demonstrate a new level of cognizance and sense, common sense that a lot of people thought they might not. Uh, but man, oh man, uh, it is, um, it is going to be some sort of test of the, the, uh, the resilience and the, uh, the commitment that that uh, people in government have to the integrity of government. Yeah, I, I was reminded this week on how many people, I mean, wherever you stand in the political spectrum, Republican, Democrat, or, you know, whatever else there is in the United States, uh, um, where that 
it took a number of people to stand up against what was a concerted effort by the former president to overturn the democracy, which now has been accused uh, that it was a plan of action with several different layers and several different parts to, uh, I mean, the January 6th insurrection was only one part of that plan uh, to get people to uh, overturn uh, a justifiable election. Uh, And one of those things, of course, that's come out during the, uh, preliminary report uh we won't know the full report till till the week till uh, till more information comes out um but the preliminary report says that that they uh there there was also a plan to put in false electors uh to to replace those electors from states which had uh, dutiful elections and so what you've seen also is states in opening up uh, investigations on the foreign president particularly georgia and that Georgia also has a criminal proceeding underway or a potential investigation into criminal proceedings to underway uh, on Trump. And we'll certainly see how this story is going to lay out. I mean, Trump issued a, a statement immediately following the January 6th findings to say, go ahead. Or, you know, every time you bring something against me, uh, my I become stronger. And, uh, you know, matching his... Uh, what is that? An NFT card that, that he <laughs> with, with him looking like he's wearing a Superman outfit or whatever else that he's. Well, I mean, yeah, there's, this guy you know, there's is one in, of him face to face with a lion, too, which I, I, I think is like, you know, criminal metaphor abuse. But anyways, that poor lion. <laughs> the, 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 the adamancy of this guy to not just paint the January 6th hearings as partisan, as a Democrat or whatever else he wants to pose it as, even though it's not, uh, but that he wants to paint this as some kind of witch hunt uh, against his legacy. Uh, the best part that I found during the uh, the January 6th findings was that he released a statement uh, or that he, you know, people who testified against him, um, I think it was Hope Hicks, uh, yeah. who testified to say that he told her that if he didn't get reelected, his legacy would be gone forever. And that gave me a moment of self-awareness that we often don't see with Trump that kind of gave me some pleasure. Yeah, well, you know, and, and I think it also represents uh, the way that narcissists uh, often you know, uh, people with a, with a, a pathological absence of self-awareness don't realize that there are many different ways that you can earn a legacy. And uh, to tell you the truth, like, uh, you know, he didn't win the election. I don't really think that he has to worry about having no legacy. I think he has to worry about the, the kind of legacy uh, that he has. And with that brings us to the holidays <laughs> back to the holidays that's right back to the holidays and uh but also uh another edition of the storytellers and a very special uh and i think uh ambitious feature interview that uh is uh kind of holiday themed because you know a lot of us what we do is we we go to see movies uh, over uh, the holidays. And so we're going to talk about one of the big holiday block- blockbusters, but we're also going to talk about the proliferation of Indigenous-made, Indigenous-themed tele- television and movies and try to figure out if uh, 
you know, whether it's okay to like these, is it okay to say that? <laughs> or th- are, are things getting better? You know, are I think, things getting better? That's a better uh, way. I think it. we all want to ask that question, uh, considering we'll be discussing the new Avatar movie. Are things really getting better? Hello, everyone. My name is Jeanette, and I'm a psychiatric nurse, a community mental health worker, and the very proud mother of Nigon. And this is the Storytellers. I've been asked to tell a story of a proud holiday mum, but this story might also embarrass Nigon just a little bit. As a single mum in the 1980s, I was hired to work in Manitoba's North Interlake as a community mental health worker in Ashern, Manitoba. Ashern's a small town of about 300 people that also services several First Nations communities who come to the town to shop, work, and attend school. Many of these kids, therefore, attended school with my children and, of course, Nigon, who was attending grade 6 at the Ashern Central School. For a northern Manitoba town, Ashern was pretty interesting because nearly every single person either worked with or was related to Indigenous peoples. This made for some interesting cross-cultural nights at the hockey rink, the community hall talent nights, or in the school. Many things I've seen today called reconciliation were already happening in the years we lived in Ashern, and I'm very proud that my children are part of them in that community. Each year, the school put on a Christmas pageant. When Nigon was in grade 6, at age 11, in 1987, he was selected to be a shepherd, which required him to learn songs such as We Three Kings, Silent Night, and sitting with a 100 or so other kids on the stage surrounding a reenactment of the manger scene when baby Jesus was born. Remember, this was 1987, and these kinds of events were still part of the public school system. Nikon came home and asked me to find him a brown towel and a bathrobe for his costume. This was what all the students were asked to wear as to be a shepherd on the stage. I know, I know, this is pretty bad stereotypes, but as a mum, I found him all the stuff and watched him for weeks practicing around the house, singing Christmas songs morning, noon, and night, getting ready for this pageant. The teachers at Ashern, whether they knew it or not, were actually pretty interesting too. For the scene of Joseph and Mary in the manger, they picked a kid from the local Ojibwe reserve to play the role of Joseph and a non-Indigenous girl from town to play the role of Mary. Thinking back on this, this was pretty radical, an interracial couple being the parents of Jesus. No one thought much about it, but now that I think about it, it was just a part of living in Ashern. Finally, the big night came. Nigon was very excited as I dropped him off for the evening's Christmas pageant. My daughter and I went and sat in the school gym and waited with my camera like all the other parents for the night to begin. When the curtain opened, I looked for my Nigon to see where he was sitting on stage with all the other kids, but couldn't find him anywhere. He was nowhere to be found. About halfway through the version of We Three Kings, just as the kings were arriving to give presents to the baby Jesus, I noticed who was sitting by Mary. It was Negon. Apparently, the student from the First Nations had had car trouble and couldn't make it to town to play his part. So the teachers asked Negon to fill in as Joseph for the night. So there my boy was, right in the middle of it all, the indigenous father of Jesus. 
Good thing Joseph had no dialogue, but Nigon was a little disappointed he never got to sing after all that practicing. Of course, this then made me the grandmother of this interracial Jesus, but I'll leave others to consider how interesting that is. And that's my story of how my boy became the Ojibwe father of Jesus. Happy holidays to everyone. We have a very special guest on the Negon and Lone Ranger podcast, a making us a trio on the uh, on the trail. Uh, we have my good friend uh, Theodore C. Van Alst Jr. or Theo, as everybody knows him. Okay. And uh, uh, some of you, you know, if you don't know who Theo is, you will certainly get to. Uh, he is a, a transport to the United States, but he actually has family uh, from Manitoba. Uh, he's professor and chair of Indigenous Nation Studies and director of the School of Gender, Race and Nations at Portland State University. Uh, he's written poetry, uh, books like Sacred Smokes, and he's got a new book uh, that's just out, Sacred City, both of them with the University of New Mexico Press. Uh, tons of writings on film, media, TV, and uh, other than that, I'll just say he is very luckily a friend of mine. Same. <laughs> I'm not sure stop, that's stop gushing. part of your yeah, no, There's no gushing on the podcast, man. It Try is, and keep or it or else I wouldn't be up this early. So you know we're friends. <laughs> Welcome to the Negon and Lone Ranger podcast, Theo. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, it's really... <clears throat> It's really cool to be here. A big part of this is my collecting my $8.50 US from you uh, <laughs> since you made me go watch Avatar yesterday afternoon. So that's going to be expensive. I'm a bill yeah. at the end. I'll probably invoice on screen. So um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, thanks for having me. Uh, I, it's it's an honor to be here. I'm also uh, an enrolled member of Mackinac Bands of Chippewa and Ottawa Indians. Uh, I want to put that out mm -hmm. there and uh, just say, um, Man, uh, I'm going to share some things about Avatar. Uh, I think that's we, we've got a multi-part show today, so we'll kick it off with that. Um, while it's still well, fresh in my mind, you know, I, I, you know, when I, Dan and I were talking this week about what show to talk about, and we wanted to. Uh, oh yeah, Dan's here too. Dan, say hello. Hey, yeah, that was the that was the uh, if that if the ethereal other voice off in the making fun. So yeah, I'm here. Uh, so when we were talking about putting the show together this week, we were sort of thinking holiday. We were thinking, what should we be talking about? Because in Manitoba right now, things are uh, things are a bit on the you know downside. We've got some violent crime that's happening in the city, and uh, but at the same time, it's the holidays. Uh, we wanted to talk about maybe a film that people would see over the holidays. So I thought there's no one really better to talk about than my favorite film critic, Theo, to discuss the latest Avatar movie, James Cameron's black blockbuster. I was about to say blockbuster, uh, but <laughs> blockbuster. Uh, Avatar 2, The Way of Water just came out. Uh, you and I both saw it last night. Dan said he couldn't bring himself to see it. He hated the first one so much. No, I just, yeah, like it wasn't about the $8.50, man. Like I I would have, uh, and sometimes going to see a mat movie that's bad is like good, right? Like it's so bad, it's good. Yeah, I just, I don't get it. Uh, I don't I don't get the Avatar thing, but that that's not an informed position. That's just a, well, you know, popcorn position. Our thoroughly informed position. Clearly, the, you know, <laughs> it is popular. 
134 million dollar opening box office weekend. It's on track. It's a, it matched the Batman in terms of this year's blockbuster. I think it's number seven or eight on the uh, year's highest grossing films. But Theo, maybe give me a, a quick take on uh, what I will call Dances with Wolves Part 2. Because do you remember that scene where Lieutenant Dunbar and Dances with Wolves way back in the 1990s, where he uh, is sort of escapes from his people, he's with another group of people, and then the cavalry show up again, and he runs off into the wilderness, and we never quite know what happens to him? Well, mm. this film picks up exactly where that leaves off. Uh, <laughs> he goes off... Uh, the you know um, Sully or his name is Jake Sully uh, takes off goes off to live with another group of indigenous peoples of course he is not an indigenous person he is an American who's been transported into an avatar body uh, but then he goes off and lives with basically the Mahdi people the 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 the, the water indigenous people who have face tattoos exactly like the Mahdi and then we find out kind of what happens to him and there's the full Titanic scene almost taken directly. All we went missing was the door and Leonardo DiCaprio. Seriously. I mean, it, it, there's a little Titanic with some MMA and wrestling in there. Uh, there's a reference to apocalypse now in there. There's, there's, there's a couple of, of reference. Um, and, and the, the film, I, I don't even know where to start. I can say the last, the, the first one. So the last time I talked about, Avatar was to sort of ruin it at the Yale Divinity School uh, when it came out. And I, and, the, and I just looked up, it was called Last of the Navi, All-American Avatar. And I, and I think to sort of maybe to answer your question a little bit, Dan, I think what's happening is this, this sort of, uh, it's a big settler fantasy. This movie starts with Last of the Mohicans. And I'll just run it down really quick. And Last of the Mohicans, a guy spends a lifetime to become the best native, right? Um, and they accelerate that. So in Negan's favorite film, Dances with Wolves, he spends his summer vacation to become the best native <laughs> there. Is. So Avatar is actually the laziest of all the last of the Mohicans because they just drop him in the body. He doesn't even have to do any work, right? He struggles a little bit with the language, but he has he has the he has all of the sort of tools that he needs to be the best native. And that's that's the arc of the film. It's a fantasy film through and through. And he, the same, you know, similar stories to the first Avatar. Uh, he he basically saves indigenous peoples yet again. Although in this one, um, I actually found it very interesting. And you know, spoiler alert to everybody that if you don't want to hear about what's happening in the end, you might want to stop the podcast here and come back to it to hear our analysis. <laughs> um, but. Uh, in this one, it's so interesting because if you remember in the first Avatar, he saved the planet from basically white people. Uh, he called them sky people or human beings or whatever, but they're basically white people. Sky people, yeah. And and the in this film, it really breaks it down to he saves his family as opposed to his, the people, which generally gets screwed because he brought the war to those people. Um, so it's this funny sort of interesting breakdown into the nuclear American dream that uh, it's now we've got this pioneer family that he's now sort of created. And it really is, as you said, a settler fantasy uh, in this story because he's no longer saving people. He's now saving sort of his nuclear family that he's created uh, with an adoptee of another uh, human uh, alien creation. 
um, who, by the way, is the best Indigenous of all, because Indigenous peoples can't download into, <laughs> exactly, uh, Theo just pointed at a t-shirt he's wearing that says half-breed. When you're a half-breed, you're the most perfect of all, aren't you, right? I mean, and, and so it, it is the perfect narrative of American exceptionalism to say that, you know, you can go to a land, take it over, and then you don't need the Indigenous peoples anymore because you are you be, you've replaced them. Yeah. You, and, and you, and, and I, and one of the things I noticed too, because we talk about some of the Hollywood references that um, the half breeds get really dragged in this film. There's a lot of crucial bad things that happen due to half breeds, which is a very 1920s, 1930s thing. I mean, and if you recall, even up through like uh, the original Lone Ranger, the guy who betrays the Lone Ranger is a half breed half breeds all with their, can't be trusted by either side. Um, he, you know, when the kids get there, they're sort of outsiders. They call them half breeds. There's a there's a very interesting piece that is that sort of gets opened up there. And um, I talked to some some folks, uh, you know, some born and raised res folks who had seen the film, and one of them had mentioned that it was really interesting what they did with the half breed thing. That they thought that they could explore that even more, right? And the thing that the thing, and I agree, but the thing that that the thing that you mentioned was the thing that they liked about the movie was that it was focused on family. That there was very much like you could you could you had some affinity with the characters because it was really about family, which is really important. The one thing that he that that this that this person said um, about the film, which they liked, they said it just. And I agree. It is relentlessly unfunny. There is no <laughs> humor in this thing at all. He goes, if they had some Indians writing in there, there'd be some jokes, eh? Because and he's right. Because this film, it, it's a grind. It's a real grind. And and my, I'll give you my quick assessment, Negan. I know you want to say something here, but this is like <clears throat> a really unedited Discovery Channel film with some hyper violent moments against indigenous people the indigenous mm -hmm. pain in this is super deep and exploitative there's a long and spoiler alert so mute your stuff there's a long really way too long drawn out uh murder of a cetacean relative and and her child through the water that just goes on and on and on it is really um it's really disturbingly violent so it moves between you know, a discovery channel about the ocean, you know, it has Cameron's vibe with the deep and all that and the abyss and all that kind of stuff. But then these hyper violent moments. Uh, so, sorry, I was just going to say, Theo, like you guys mentioned how, um, you know, settler fantasy and, and the, you know, connection to other films that are treatments or mistreatments of, of the indigenous narrative. But I'm wondering as well too, like, is, is this a corollary? Like, is it an extension of the, white guy or girl goes to inner city school goes to foreign country and you know saves them from themselves kind of uh film that like you know i, I mean i'd like to think they make fewer of them in hollywood now but it kind of creeps back in from time to time is that are there some filmatic connections between those uh those types of films well, i mean I Tom Cruise last samurai is the one that really comes yeah. With you. Oh, no, I was going to say there. there's really only uh, one kind of instance where they come in from the outside where um, one of the kids, right, one of the half-breed kids actually makes relatives with uh, with with someone who had been considered an outsider for a long time, who had been shunned from the community. Mm -hmm. And so they sort of make this bridge. But there isn't sort of the, the teaching 
savior moments in that way. It's it's much more sort of meta global in in its saviorism. Mm-hmm. The, the first 30 minutes of the film is basically a recap of the first film. And then you, you find out that he has a family and some kids and so on. And then, and then the film doubles down, like, you know, all the criticism James Cameron got and even went to the indigenous peoples of Alberta, I think Blackfoot peoples and spent some time with him after Avatar. And he said, Oh, I'm going to make sure the next one is better and all this kind of stuff. And that was like, you know, 150 years ago or whenever that was. And so in this one, it doubles down. I mean, the 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 commanding officer for the humans when they arrive on the planet again, uh, which they've come back after ten years, basically with revenge, um, is they're going to take the whole planet now and they're going to industrialize the whole thing. And the search is really driven for the fountain of youth, which is like right out of Pilgrim narratives, um, mm-hmm. going back to the 15th century. That when the the first discovery of the, the of North America was basically that there'd be a fountain of youth here, and there is a fountain of youth on this planet. Um, I won't tell people where it is because I won't spoil everything, but I will say that there the the fountain of youth is on this planet, and literally like it's like a 15th century narrative gone amok. Yeah, I, I agree. There's a lot of there's a lot of just settler uh, fantasy and narrative in here. Um, it reads that it's kind of like a, a, a in parts like a Greenpeace propaganda. Film. It's very anti-whaling. So there's like 17th, 18th century narratives in there as well. Um, there's even like a there's a Moby Dick reference in there. You'll get it. You'll yeah. see it when it happens. It's and, and, wild. and just watch for the Titanic reference. We don't want to spend all the yeah. time on, on Avatar, but I'm sure people will just rush to the theaters now. <laughs> Well, yeah. you know, the thing is, is you mentioned, Dan, like, is this a this is a movie that families will go see? Look, if you need your kid to take a nap, go to this film because it's like 90 <laughs> minutes too long. Right. And they're going to they're going to peace out right in the middle of the big giant sea anemone part. Your kids are going to pass out. So bring blankets and snacks because this is like an epic undertaking. It's a day Be- trip. Three and a half hour film, yeah. Um, yeah. You want to get to talking about some of the more recent developments in film and TV too, which you've talked and written a lot about. Um, everybody's talking about Reservation Dogs. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, Taika Watiti worked with some indigenous peoples, uh, notably, um, you know, people in Oklahoma to develop this incredible blockbuster uh, t- series that's taken the online community by storm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Reservation Dogs and just the, the growth of an industry that's being led now by Indigenous filmmakers and TV makers? Yeah, and 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 you know that's that's a good point to to bring. And I think you have to you have to look at some of this stuff. Um, it, it seems like oh yeah, all of a sudden everybody's talking about, it, but but in actuality. Um, that Sundance program that that Taika Waititi and Sterling Harjo and they all came out that's over 20 years old right so it's a long time in the making uh, to to get here but I think you know with artistic production timing is everything right how many lost artists and ignored people are there and I think there's something in the world right now um, there's sort of a confluence of a demand for authenticity um, you know the ability to 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 sort of check people to check things and I think the stories and the and and everything and the writing that's being told in a in a show like Reservation Dogs has a lot of resonance in the world, right? People are looking for for what's authentic, what's you know, um, what what is something that's universal I can respond to, and they're I think they're a broader audience is finding things within this show, and the writing 
is excellent. The production is excellent, right? The tales they're telling are fantastic. And because it's all indigenous led, it has a, it has a different vibe. It's it's funny. It's about the ancestors. It's about the day to day grind. It's about dreams. It's about all of these things um, that I think don't always come along. And they've they've managed to do that in this show in really special and spectacular ways. And there you watch this show. There are episodes that'll make you cry for sure. And there'll make there and there are things in there that'll make you cry from laughing too. So everything is encased in there. It's it's really uh pretty wonderful uh in a lot it, of ways. It is I mean, you mentioned the word authentic. And um, I mean, I think that you know, for a non-indigenous audience, there's always this lingering idea in the back when you're watching dark winds or reservation dogs or, or, um, you know, crave, um, apple is just pushed out, um, three pines, um, which interestingly can like, it's a co-Canadian production based on a really popular series of books where, um, the producers of the film that are not all indigenous, like a lot of the writers and, and, and producers are, but they've actually rewritten characters in the original novels to be indigenous, which is um, like turning the tap in the other direction is kind of an interesting tribute. But so like, but you would say back to reservation dogs, like that it is authentic. I, I very rarely have watched a show that I think combines like this deeply visceral pathos with humor um, and, you know, in discussing, like the worst uh, and the best experiences of, of uh, life on a reservation. But, you know, for those of us who, who are not indigenous, you, this is, you would say this show has been embraced as an authentic expression. Yeah. I mean, if, if you, if you check the sort of social media criticisms and stuff of it and there, it's not, it's not just this wonderful hermetically sealed, fantastic production. There are issues, you know, that have been discussed here and there, but uh, I think that the show does that thing um, in terms of authenticity, where you you have all of that in that that's enrolled in 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 that's encapsulated rather in the show. And when you talk about humor, you're talking about survivors' humor. You're talking about mm -hmm. gallows humor. You're talking about all those things that are coping mechanisms and all of those things. And I, I, I tell my students, we talk about the humor piece. I go back to the great Alan King, right? A great sort of Borscht Belt Jewish comedian back in the day. And he was like on Johnny Carson. And Johnny just said to him, because it was then, he's like, why are there so many Jewish comedians? Why why are you so funny? And Alan King looks at me and goes, so you don't kill the rest of us, right? So <laughs> there's this sort of humor in in this. And this is like, you know, 20 years after the Holocaust, right? So he's trying to to sort of process this thing. And I think that's what you do, you know? And I I'm, I'm, would always crack jokes when I was an undergrad and stuff. And I had this asshole sociology professor is like, humor is just poor man's vodka. I'm like, dude, you are... You you are something else, man. You're missing but, the point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think if you if you read, there's always humor. And that's what I meant about the about the avatar. But there's just no humor. It's totally non-indigenous. It's just like this is, you know, there there are plenty of moments in Negan you saw where you could have had some really bomber jokes going on. <laughs> yeah, there's 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 no you think James Cameron would take notes at this point or uh <laughs> he better. I think James Cameron was too. Uh, obsessed with his vision, which I think is now you know tipped because now he says that the uh, there may it may not be a five film series, but it might be a three a three film series. Um, 
you know, the Canadian version of Reservation Dogs is out now. And I don't know if you've seen it because you're on the other side of the medicine line there. Um, but it's uh, by a, a Manitoba comedian, First Nations comedian called Paul Arubislakis. Uh, he has got a show called Acting Good. Uh, it's on CTV, which is the uh, major private network here in the country. Um, it's been universally sort of beloved. Uh, it's about his time on his uh, reserve. I think it's a fictional reserve, but it's based on his life growing up in northern Manitoba. Um, and, you know, what is it about TV specifically that is leading to a lot of really strong Indigenous run narratives uh, I mean, we're seeing a little bit of that in film, but we're seeing it really in TV. When I talk about like novels or film, my my book, short stories, pieces like that are like television. I write television. I don't write like epic films. I write cons- sort of these consumable moments. You spend twenty minutes, a half hour with a story or with an episode. You can you can do the thing, and I don't I don't think people always have the wherewithal to sit down and watch films. And so television, though not necessarily cheaper than films, is a way to tell. You know, a story arcs, evolving characters. I think there's a lot that you can do. I'm a big proponent of the short and and of and of episodic television. I think you can do some really good and interesting things, and you can change things up week to week. And so I think, um, and 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 because television is streamable, because you can watch an episode at lunch, or you can you can keep up with it uh, in ways that are much easier than than to sit down and watch a film. So I think television. Um, and because you usually have more writers in the room, there's there's just a lot mm-hmm. more possibility for creativity in television. I'm wondering if the the, the sheer amount um, and the obviously, um, you know, the money people in TV and movies are they're coming up with the money to make these shows. I mean, they see the the commercial benefit as, as well as the cultural uh, value. Um, but it, you know, I thought like one of the interesting sub narratives to um uh the dark winds uh uh it's a thriller detective novel that takes place on a navajo nation in new mexico and it's a robert redford executive produced uh, show but um just about all the the major hands-on people for the production were indigenous but it it kind of reminded me that like we you know perhaps there's been so much success that we're now also learning that there's no thing one there's no one unified homogenized indigenous you know tv and movie so one of the sub narratives the dark winds is um you know uh, it's a navajo nation none of the actors were navajo so of course uh they did speak uh Dene, uh you know during the show and then navajo elders and and you know protectors of culture came out and said yeah you know that was a really good effort but you people are not <laughs> convincing uh as members of the navajo nation and it it's um i guess suppose that in a way that we're starting to learn about there is no homogenous indigenous culture that that's also a positive perhaps that's coming out of this yeah, it's not a monolith, right? People are starting starting to learn that. Some folks are starting to learn that the hard way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think too, though, people are making you know making arguments. Well, it's acting, you know. I mean, it's just it's a fictional character, right? Um, I, I think if you say yeah, specifically, this is a Dene person, then you want to get as close to that as possible. And if you can cast a Dene actor who can do that job, then you should you should do that thing. But I think about Reservation Dogs. Um, I think about Miss Sock Alexis, right? She's she's or Miss Alexis. She's from um 
Alexis First Nations, right? And the Willie Jack character in there is from up north, right? And I think Cheese is from Oklahoma. There's somebody, there's, there people are from all over the place. And, and it brings me back to the first smoke signals. And people are like, that's actually not an American film. That's actually a First Nations film. Everybody in it is from up north, right? So you have this, that's sort of swirling around. That's a really good point, Dan, is that like how deeply authentic does a person have to be from that specific nation to play that specific role, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I think it's evolving. And I think it's it's good that there's room to sort of, you know, peel that back and, and have a closer look at what it is that's trying to be, you know, they're trying to do here. Yeah, I think when you talk about the 20 years or decades long uh, struggle to kind of uh, produce a new generation of indigenous filmmakers. This is a great problem to have sure. compared to where things were 20 years ago. Uh, like, I haven't been really surprised by uh, the retelling by indigenous filmmakers and TV makers of history, you know, of in many ways, correcting history. I mean, I'm thinking of Richard Wagamese, uh, you know, t Indian horse, sort of correcting the experiences of residential school, talking about the kind of dynamism of a, of a person who goes to residential school, but then can still, you know, could become the world's greatest hockey player or, or, and then struggle with these different demons that Richard himself dealt with during that film, the novel than a film. But you also see this kind of trend in futurism in indigenous films and TV that I think is the most exciting elements. And I'm thinking about blood quantum as uh, this indigenous zombie film that uh, people might be able to to download on their TVs. Uh, I don't think it had a theatrical release because it was probably released either pre-pandemic or during the pandemic or, um, but, you know, Blood Quantum is this really interesting narrative, which is about colonization, but it's also about the future. And it's also about, uh, you know, basically a zombie plague has corrupted uh, the world and the only immune people are indigenous people, and uh, they don't play along much with blood with blood quantum per se as to talking about who's half breed, who's not. They're talking. This is more about kinship, and it's about about the creation of a community in the apocalypse of uh, the destruction of a universe, uh, which is very much talking about a history, but it's also talking about a future and how do we create a future. And I think that's probably the most exciting thing, and maybe it's the most marketable thing too, because I've often said indigenous knowledge is what's going to save the world, uh, not capitalism, certainly not elements of Christianity. Um, it's going to be indigenous sustainability and reciprocity that will probably save the world. Uh, you think about the global climate change collapse and so on. Uh, do you th see the same thing in kind of a, a future looking toward a futuristic looking in the in the film and TV? I, yeah, I think um, some of those things are are gonna are gonna uh, come forward. I'm thinking of you know different projects, and I'm thinking of what folks are writing. And we just got you know a, we're gonna have a release next year. We we with the co-editor of mine Shane Hawk, we put together um, a really uh, I think special collection of indigenous dark fiction, and some of that is is futuristic, and some of it deals with the past and it, uh, you'll I'm excited it has folks from both sides of the line it has I, I don't know if I can name the authors but they're, they're it's going to be a big book and I think about what people are writing about in there and I think about having talked to students like native lit is is post-apocalyptic literature this is all futuristic we're all sort of writing out, out of the ashes of what's happened over the last 500 years I think of uh Danny Goulet's Wakening right one of the earliest sort of 
cool films that I remember seeing. I don't know if you know that film. It's like a kind of a post-apocalyptic Montreal, and there's a Wittico in uh, in a movie theater that lives in a movie theater. You can get it online. It's like a ten. It's a short. Again, I like short films, but uh, that film I think was pretty early on uh, indicating what was happening. And I think you're right. I think there's two tracks. There's what's the here and now, and what what there's going to be. And maybe that's a key difference. Is a lot of um, <clears throat> native film that's non-native authored or non-indigenous made looks at the past all of the time and doesn't imagine us in the future. And in order to be in the future, we have to imagine ourselves there. And that's, I think, a key difference. And for those of you that don't know what a week to go is, is a, it's a traditional character in Cree and Anishinaabe traditions that's a, that consumes. It's basically a cannibalistic figure, but it's also a creator being because it's, it's someone that uh, doesn't just destroy, but also encourages you to create or to choose a path of kinship and to choose a path of family, um, of community. And so interesting that it lives in a film, in a, in a, uh, in a theater, in that it is the theater, it is the place that we are uh, most often misrepresented and, and destroyed um, because it's so full of pop culture and influences the most amount of people, probably more than government and policy, is film, movie, books, novels. Um, and so, you know, I got an interesting tweet this week. Uh, the very first one that I've gotten, Dan said he's gotten a couple of them, but the very first one that I've gotten where somebody said, hey, the name of your podcast is very racist. And and I was like, no, it's a reimagining. It's a repossession. It's it's we're we're trying to remake a narrative that has been highly destructive of Indigenous peoples in the past, particularly in film and TV and radio. And we're redoing it. We're showing that it can be full of humor and full of life and full of interesting elements. Um, and I think putting a week to go in a theater is the perfect metaphor. Nice. Nice. And you can tell, you can, you can uh, tell that person who tweeted at you <laughs> to watch the pilot of the Lone Ranger because the Lone Ranger is actually a creation of Tonto's. I taught this. I'm getting the yes from Dan. <laughs> I have taught this thing in class and showed it to students. They're like, whoa. The original Tano is a pretty transgressive dude. And there was, he's like, maybe you should wear this mask. Maybe <laughs> you should call yourself the Lone Ranger. It's really good. It's really, he's totally created by Tano. So there's that. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, we did, we focus grouped the name uh, in our various communities. And, uh, but also I did, I had to do like a lot of deep research to make sure the Lone Ranger hadn't been canceled. But uh, yeah, like it's, I mean, going back to our first episode, we, you know, we talked about, there's also the code of conduct that, uh, that the Lone Ranger lives by. And then there was also the original creators had a, uh, it, whenever they licensed it, because it started as a radio serial right. for film and TV, they had a list of rules that like uh, the Lone Ranger could never kill anybody um, that the and the the enemies of the Lone Ranger that he was pursuing would always have to be uh, white. They they couldn't it couldn't be a, a racialized group. And you know this is going back to the 1930s. That put my mind at ease a little bit about adopting the <laughs> reimagined character of the Lone Ranger. So, and I can I can add a little too because I was talking about it in class, and I have some some senior folks um, who who take classes. Um, and they were, I was talking about, I don't know what happened, this sort of, you know, there's this great transgressive pilot, and then he kind of devolves into this sidekick character, you know, blah, blah, blah. And this woman in the back was like, I don't know what you're talking about. He was never a sidekick. He was, and I was like, 
Well, have you seen that? She goes, I'm talking about the radio show. And so this woman, <laughs> she grew up. Okay, props. Yeah. Like, yeah, the radio show is even better for Tano. So, yeah, definitely. I want to say a big miigwech to you, uh, my Anishinaabe brother, uh, Theo, and uh, all the work that you do in film and TV. Um, I also have to come back to Manitoba. Always happy to visit. And, and yeah, definitely, brother, anytime. Anytime. And I'll just add two notes to thanks. Number one, thanks to both of you, because now I don't have to see the Avatar sequel. It's, <laughs> it's dead to me now, and, and I feel good about that. And then the uh, the second one is my wife and I can thoroughly enjoy Reservation Dogs with the understanding that it's a good thing, um, which isn't always hard or isn't always easy for you know folks like me to figure out. But uh, I really appreciate your insight into that. Absolutely. I think the the one thing I, I would say again about so, uh, something like reservation dogs, a native made thing uh, in that regard is that, you know, there's stuff that like native folks are instantly going to key in on, right? Like the, you know, with the owl, like the, the that was just hilarious, man. I, I was on the ground. And so it reminds me, it's a two track narrative. And if you have kids, you know, this from going to Pixar movies, you're like, there are two different movies playing here, right? There's, there's the one for the kids and then there's the one for the adults. And I think, in a thing like reservation dogs, there's there's the there's definitely you know yeah the overculture might get some of this stuff, but there's it's definitely made for native audiences, and that just that resonates with folks like in really deep ways. Well, let's hold that as a model for our podcast to a double narrative. <laughs> um, big miigwech to you, Theo. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Uh, we appreciate it so much, and uh, for the your generosity of your time. See miigwech, bro. Big thanks to all of the crew at CJNU and Adam, our producer. Uh, of course, all of our friends and our colleagues at the Winnipeg Free Press who continue to support the podcast. Uh, and I hope that you have a great holiday uh, this week. It's a it's a big time for family and for community. I hope that you all spend that. Dan, you too. Thank you, brother. I think it's all worked out better than we could have even hoped for. We'll see you in the next episode of Negon and the Lone Ranger. <laughs>